Lord, we love you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the testimony of Nehemiah in the scripture. You've devoted these 13 chapters to encouraging us what it looks like to, to persevere in the grace of God through trials and challenges and to come out victorious. Lord, I appreciate how this is so ministered to my heart. So Lord, I'm asking that you would release light and understanding upon us, revelation upon us. I'm asking you, Abba, come and help me to speak as an oracle today. I pray you'd stand with me and hold my hand. My weakness, that you would be strong. Come, Holy Spirit, release your anointing. We love you, Lord. Love you, Lord. Good, in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. All right. Nehemiah, I, uh, we're continuing on a series we're on uh, about zeal for the house of prayer. And uh, I started and just did half, half of the book last week, one through six of Nehemiah, because the story is so encouraging and so, uh, I mean, they persevered so, through so many different challenges, and it so parallels the building of the house of prayer. And I mentioned last week how uh, for years and years, uh, it had been prophesied to me that you're like Nehemiah. You have a, uh, an anointing like Nehemiah. And I just, you know, I think I read through it a couple times and it just never registered with me. And it just never caught my attention. I didn't understand what uh, those prophetic words were about. And I think now, obviously, I look back at it and I go, oh my goodness. This is certainly uh, a word from the Lord. And, and those prophecies were. And so uh, t- today, just want to continue along where we were last week. And... Uh, Pick up, and uh, we'll pick up in chapter seven. Just to just to recap, um, Nehemiah he was working for the Persian king and uh, Artaxerxes, and he gets gripped when he finds out that the uh, the city of Jerusalem is still in ruins. the uh, The wall is completely uh, broken down, and the people there are are they're in poverty and they're experiencing real hard challenges, and um, and so the, the wall is like 150 years of ruins just around the city. And he gets gripped and he says to the king, Hey, I want to go and rebuild the wall in my city and I want you to pay for it. And the king says, Amen. And Nehemiah says, Amen. And so he goes back and leads a group. And they, uh, in 52 days, they rebuild the wall. 52 days under two months. And uh, what ends up happening is each family... Uh, that's there, they all take a section of the wall and they build together. And they end up having to fight with a building instrument in one hand and a weapon in another. And they're, they're fighting off the attacks of, of the uh, surrounding uh, peoples who are you know, really uh, negative toward them, don't like the Jews. And they, they get weary along the way. And uh, to me, one of the high points of the first six chapters is Nehemiah 4.14. I'll just read it to you. It'll come up on your screen says, uh, and I looked and rose and said to the nobles, to the leaders of the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So he gives them these three points. They're weary, they're ready to quit, and he says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight. And it is, it's fight for the vision. Give yourself to fighting for this vision. Don't be afraid of what the enemy is saying. Remember the greatness of our God and fight for your heritage. 
your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives. Fight for the vision the Lord's giving you to protect this city. And uh, I think that's just a powerful, I mean, that's, that's probably one I'm going to come back to in times of discouragement. I'm going to go, what was that Nehemiah verse again? I'm going to go, right, okay, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember God. Oh, yeah, God, you are awesome. Oh, good. Okay, fight. Here we go, you know, and I'm going to encourage myself with that verse in the coming days, I'm sure. And so there at the end, through these mockeries and these attacks of the enemy and lack of finances and long hard work and false prophets hired by the enemy in the midst and, and massive fear, Nehemiah says in, in chapter 6 verse 9, he says, Oh Lord, he doesn't say get rid of all the problems for me. He doesn't say just kill the enemy. He goes, Oh Lord, strengthen my hand. Strengthen my hands in the work. And that's it. That's really a picture of how Christian maturity works. It's, it's not God necessarily removing all the obstacles, though He does that. But many and most of the time, I believe, it's God strengthening our hands through the challenges. Strengthen my hands. And that's grace. That's grace imparted. A lot of times we think grace is this feeling of you know, ease and comfort, and it's just easy and then so when we define grace as ease what we do is when things get challenging we say well I'm not really feeling much grace and I don't think that's probably the most mature way to think of that uh, think of grace grace is the inner resolve that has divine enablement that enables you to do it whether it's smooth or whether it's challenging it's that inside thing the inner resolve that enables you to overcome even in the midst of challenge and so I love Nehemiah's example. He says, oh, in the middle of all this, they're trying, I mean, he's trying, basically the, the enemy is doing assassination attempts on him. And he says, Lord, strengthen my hands. In other words, release grace, release might upon me that I can stand. And I think that's an excellent example. And so Nehemiah, he's my new best friend. He's my new favorite hero. I just love it. I just love this testimony. And uh, I think I'm getting... More out of this than everybody else, but I'm, I'm into it. So anyway, let's pick it up. In, uh, chapter 7 is pretty simple. He's going he's gonna to take a census, and uh, he hands over the leadership of the city to his brother, and he's going to take a census of the city because they're trying to figure out how to move people into the city because they've got this great wall, the temple's there, there's all this room, and almost nobody lives inside of Jerusalem now. Because, you know, it hadn't had a wall, so they've been, you know, clustering up in other places. And so he's going to take a census and, and register the people so he, he can pick one out of every ten and ask them to move into the city. And when he's doing that, he goes ahead and he finds this, uh, this uh, registration from when they had come out of captivity in Babylon. And, and basically what you get in all chapter 7 is, is uh, the, uh, the restatement of that. And you, I think you find that in Ezra chapter 2. And so... What you're seeing is Nehemiah is strategically planning on how to fortify the city and, and fortify the people in their worship. That's the whole point. He wants them to come back to who they were as a people that were ordained to be a kingdom of priests before the Lord. That's really what he's after. He's not after trying to make a great name for himself, and he's not after trying to make Jerusalem some major economic place. What he's trying to do is he's trying to fortify the city so the people can return to worshiping the Lord in the way that God had called them to as a kingdom of priests, and, and to really give themselves to worshiping God. 
And that's really what you get in the last part of this book. You begin to see the motivation for Nehemiah when he first heard that the city was, you know, uh, broken down, he did the math and realized, well, if the city walls are broken down, that's simply a picture. It's a picture of the spiritual state of the, the people that are there. They're broken down in the spirit. And what we've got to do, he's thinking, is get the walls built, get the city uh, inhabited again, and get the people flowing in those things which God has called them to be in, and, and, and alive and abandoned in worship. And so you'll see the motive of that through the, uh, the rest of the book, chapter 7 through 13. So seven, we get that genealogy from those who returned from Babylon. And in chapter eight, it's the beginning of the seventh month. Now, if you've studied um, at all Jewish history and Jewish feasts, you know the seventh month is an important month. It's the month of Tishrei. It's the month where all the fall feasts uh, land. And so the first, the tenth, and the fifteenth are big Jewish feasts. And, and the first is Rosh Hashanah, and, 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 and then the tenth is the Day of Atonement, and then the 15th is the Feast of Tabernacles. And so basically from the first, really in the Feast of Tabernacles lasts um, seven, yay, eight days because they do an extra, extra one on the end of it. But really for the first 22, 23 days of the month, they're uh, in this time of um, fall worship. And, and some, of it is, uh, some of it is celebrative. Some of it is, is geared to be um, you know, more repentive and turning back towards the Lord. But the first day of the month, is um, it's a new year, it's the Feast of Trumpets, it, they fall on the same thing, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Teruah, they fall on the same day, the first of the seventh month, and so they're, they're coming together now in, in chapter 8, and they come together to celebrate the, uh, the fall feasts, and the Feast of Trumpets, and the, and the new year, and the new moon, and so all the people come together, and here's what happens, they open the book of the law, and this, you, you just have to, when you, when you read these accounts, you have to step out of the story just for a minute and see it from a 10,000-foot view. And then you've got to step into the story and see it from the one-foot view. And, and you get the picture of the whole thing. But they're, they're there on the first of the month. They're getting ready to celebrate. They ask the, uh, the priests to open the, the law and read the law. And Ezra and, and the other Levites with them, they begin to read the law. And at the reading of the law, the word of the Lord goes forth and the people get pierced just reading the scriptures. So it's like if I were to stand here, I open the Bible, I begin to read it, and all of a sudden people start falling on their face. It says they fell down on their face and mourning and weeping and repentance. And so... I, I'm thinking about in my life, I think there's been two times that I can remember when just reading the scripture, just reading the verse, and the power of God is let loose, and it, it completely just you know, lays the people waste just at le- reading the word. I've only, I, I think I've experienced that twice. And maybe go back in your mind and, and think about it. Have you ever been in a service where the guy opens the Bible, just reads the verse, and there's this Holy Spirit onslaught where people are just undone by the, by the presence and the power of the Lord. Well, that's, what go, that's what's happening here. They finished the wall. They're coming together to celebrate Feast of Trumpets, Jewish New Year. They're supposed to be celebrating. They read the law and boom, the word of God hits them so powerfully. They're prostrate in mourning and weeping. 
That is a revival service, my friend. That is power on the word. The guy gets up and reads it. You know, they, they used to say Jonathan Edwards, he's the principal figure of the first great awakening, he would just get up and read his sermons in a monotone voice. And the people would be slain by the word that was coming off of him, just reading the, the sermons. And, uh, and oh, that we would have this sort of power on the reading of the word, just the, the simple proclamations of the word. You know, it's almost out of our mind nowadays that the, the Bible can have that kind of influence over the human soul. And you just read the word and the men are cut. You read the word and the soul is pierced. You read the word and people fall down, prostrate, mourning and weeping. And so that's what's going on here. I'm, and I'm looking that, I'm, a, I'm in shock. I'm thinking, my goodness. I believe there's days coming when we're going to stand and we're going to read the word of God. We're just going to read the verses. And power is going to be let loose and, and people's hearts are going to be split open just at the reading of the word. See, there's principles going on here. They worked and they labored for this, this season of time through challenges and trials and through the attacks of the enemies. They give themselves to, to going for it. They get the breakthrough and then they come together to worship the Lord. And when they do, power is on the gospel all of a sudden. There's a principle there. It's a picture of laboring in prayer. It's a picture of, of laboring for a city. It's a picture of intercession. Nehemiah is a great intercessor. It's a picture of him interceding for the nation of Israel. And bam, this breakthrough of power comes. And so let's pick up the story in chapter 8, verse 9. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people and said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Oh, it gets so intense, he can't, they've got to try to bring the people back. Like, hey guys, we get it. The spirit of the fear of the Lord is on this place. <laughs> Something's happening, but, but let's not weep today. We're actually here to celebrate Unto the Lord. The, the point is, they all know that in just a few days, they're going to be doing the Day of Atonement. The days of awe are coming. They're going to have plenty of time for repentance in a few weeks. But this day, they're supposed to come together to celebrate the goodness of God for rebuilding the wall. So they say, hey, hey, hold, hold that thought. The Lord is definitely on us. This is good. But let's not mourn and weep in the day that the Lord has prescribed for us to be grateful. That's the whole point. To celebrate and be grateful. And they're not saying repentance is wrong because in a minute you're going to see they give, I think, one of the most powerful uh, statements of repentance in the entire Bible is right there. It's nestled in Nehemiah. But they say, hold that thought. Let's let today be a day of celebration and rejoicing. And then look at verse 10. Let's finally get verse 10 in context. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send the portions of those whom, for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
Who's ever heard of the joy of the Lord is your strength? I mean, we've heard that verse quoted bunches of times as it relates to, hey, you just got to be happy, man. Come on, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, you're going through the trial and you're feeling kind of down. And the guy goes, hey, man, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And sometimes I just want to go, I'm not feeling that right now. And your little snippet in helping me. Never understood why that didn't just land on me and go, yeah, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Praise the Lord. Well, the reason why is because it's completely out of context. When we hank that verse and give it to the guy that's a little depressed, go, hey, the joy of the Lord is your strength. We're totally, it's not even what that is about. Here's what it's about. They are so pierced and mourning at the reading of the law, and the reason why is they recognize everything that they and their uh, fathers have done in the last hundreds of years is against the Lord's will and has been in rebellion to the Lord. They realize that they have completely departed from God. And so they are totally struck with this, uh, you know, intense grief over the fact that they have departed from the Lord. They haven't followed his ordinances. They haven't followed his ways. Yet God has been good to them over and over and over and over, restoring to them continually. And so they are, they are pierced over the truths of the law and the recognition that their fathers and them, they haven't followed the Lord, and the Lord has continued to outstretch his hand. And so when he says, listen, today is a day that's holy to the Lord, We should be grateful to the Lord today. Let's celebrate in the way that he's prescribed. Eat the fat, drink the sweet. He goes, give gifts to others. Let's go ahead and celebrate the way that we're supposed to celebrate. And he says, now, in regard to this being pierced and and, and feeling like you've departed from the Lord, he goes, let me give you a prescription for that. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And what those words really mean is this. Rejoicing in God is your stronghold. Rejoicing in God is your safety net. If you, as a people, beloved, will experience the Lord on the days that he's prescribed, and the holy days, and the festive times, if you will give yourself to experiencing God and finding out how good God is, you won't stray like your forefathers have. Rejoicing in the Lord is your stronghold, so you won't do what they've done in departing from God. We actually get the verse in context. So what he's telling them is this. If you will give yourself to God, If you will worship him in the way he's prescribed, let's do today the way he's asked, you'll find your pleasure in God. You'll let your heart flow back and forth in rejoicing in God. That will keep you. Nehemiah is preaching God as the most superior pleasure. That's what he's doing. He's preaching God as the most superior pleasure. And he says, if you can connect to God in that way, that has massive staying power in your relationship with him. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's your safety net. It's your stronghold. So we finally get those verses in place. And so then the people, they celebrate. 
And they, they celebrate God's goodness and, and they celebrate the fact that God has enabled them to, to build the wall and to, to be reestablished in their own land. And, and so then they go on and they celebrate the Day of Atonement and then they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And we pick it up in verse 17. The whole company that had returned from exile, he built booth, they built, uh, from exile built booths and lived in them. And look at this verse. Look at this phrase. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun. I'm reading NIV. Until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. What they had done is they'd celebrated the, the Jewish New Year, the Feast of Trumpets. And then they'd celebrated the Day of Atonement. And then they'd celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. And for seven days they built the booths. And then they even added, there's, a, there's another uh, uh, day that they add on the end of it. That's, that's Because God's such a good host, they, add, they actually do it for eight days. They add a day on the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. That, because God's so kind. So they celebrate. And it says that since the days of Joshua. Now think about that. I mean, after Joshua, you've got a lot of great kings. I mean, you've got David, you've got Solomon, you've got lots of great kings that loved God. And it says, not one time from the days of Joshua, when they first entered the promised land, and they'd first had, I mean, that's like the, you know, the first generation after they've gotten the, uh, the prescription to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, that first generation, he, they, he says, not since that first generation when they first entered the promised land did the people celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles like this. What's going on there? Beloved, they are in revival. They're in massive revival. They're rejoicing in God and they're finding their strength in that. They're experiencing the goodness of God. They've worked and toiled in the heat of the day. They've gotten a breakthrough. And now the Lord is resting upon the entire community. There's a sensation of the presence of the Lord amongst them. And they are in great rejoicing more than ever since the days of Joshua. This is powerful what's happening. So, what they do is this. They set up after the Feast of Tabernacles is over. So they are basically been in 22 days of continual um, worship to the Lord. And then what they do is right on the end of that, on the day 24, they tack on a solemn assembly. Might as well. It's kind of, it reminds me of the Moravians. You know, the Moravians, they get this... Here's the, really the story of what the Moravians, what happened with them. They were in total divisiveness. And Count Zinzendorf brings the, 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 the two guys together that were leading the division. And he says, you guys have to repent. And he does it in the, among the people. And the fear of the Lord falls on them. They repent, and, and the power of God hits, and they stay in this incredible visitation of the Lord. And so when the, when the meeting time comes to an end, because they've been with the Lord like all night now, people are like, hey, we, we got to go home. Several of them say, we can't go home because the presence of the Lord is here. And so then that's how they set up the 120-year prayer meeting. It starts with this, they call it the Moravian Pentecost. Power of God comes, 
and they, they get united, and then they say, you know what, we're going to continue to tend this flame. And that's when they pull Leviticus 6, 12 in. It says, the fire on the altar shall never go out. And so they just stay, because the Lord is resting on them, they just stay in continual communion with the Lord for the next 120 years. <laughs> and the Protestant missions movement is birthed out of Herrenhut, Germany. <laughs> well, it's the same thing here. They're having 22 days of encounter with the Lord, essentially. They go, hey... There's no real feast that we've got to celebrate, but let's have a solemn assembly. (laughs) Just let's get Lou England. We'll do the call, and we're going to go all day. And they do. They literally do an all-day solemn assembly. That's what they do. (laughs) But we didn't come up with that first. It was this generation isn't the first one that said, "Hey, let's have an all-day solemn assembly, crying out, fasting, and prayer, and repentance." These guys did it. So here's what they do: verse three of chapter nine. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord, their God. And so here it is. The quarter of the day is the quarter of the daylight. So a quarter of the day ends up being about three hours. So they stand there and they listen to the law being read for three hours. Now think about that one. Come on, it feels a little long if I go about 50 minutes. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'm up here preaching. They're reading the law, standing at attention for three hours. And they go right from that into three hours of repentance and confessing their sins. You know, you've had a good altar call, maybe when you got called forward and you, you repented, you know, and... You know, 15 minutes, you're like, man, I've repented everything I can think of. If you're really feeling the Lord, you might double stitch it and just hit them all again. <laughs> you know, all the issues again, just double, double dip them. Lord, I'm really sorry this time. I mean, I know I said it, but I really am. And you stay there under the, I mean, 30 minutes in an altar call, that's a long time. They stayed in it for three hours. <laughs> three hours. I'll think about that. Three hours standing and listening to the word, and then three hours in the altar call, repenting and crying out. They are in revival. And I love it. Because they go, and, and they, uh, they do this incredible repentance, and then what they do is they write a document, a repentance document, and everybody agrees to sign it. And that's, that's what they do. So they write this incredible document of repentance. Everybody is going to sign it. And, uh, and they're just, the whole community is just, just totally gripped. And so here's how it goes. In, in, in chapter 9, we get what's written on the document. And uh, from verse 6 to uh, verse 38, it's one of, in my mind, one of the greatest proclamations of the greatness of God in all of Scripture. Chapter 9, 6 through 38. They just go on and on and on about how good God has been and how many times he, they've, he's, been, he's delivered them and, and how much He's done for them. And they just go over and over and just tell the whole story again. You know, one of the, one of the best ways to praise the Lord is to, to proclaim the great things He has done. Don't you, don't you ever do that? Lord, thank you for when you did this for me. 
Thank you for when you did that for me. There's something that happens in your heart when you remember the wondrous works of the Lord. And that's what they're doing. They're proclaiming the great things the Lord has done. And so, here's how it goes. They proclaim the greatness of God. And in the midst of it, they come to recognition of their own sinfulness. And in verse 33, look at this verse. Stunning. And they, they, in, in verse 32, they preface it. They say, from the time, we've been under tribute from, uh, from foreign kings from the time of the kings of Assyria who destroyed the, the northern kingdom up until now. So, you know, they went into captivity under Babylon and now Persia had them under tribute. And look at verse 33. However, you are just in all that has befallen us. Oh my goodness. You are just in all that has befallen us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Beloved, that's real repentance right there. That's real repentance. That's not the, yeah, we, you know, we got into sin, but it was so-and-so, you know, they, they kind of, it was their fault too. And man, God, you were a little hard on us. They go, no, no, no. We watched, we watched the Babylonians come in and pillage our houses and destroy our heritage and kill our children. But we have been so wicked, we deserved it. It was absolutely just for you to allow this to happen, Lord. I can't, I mean, I, Verse 33, I can't even, I'm, I'm just, I'm stunned. They said all that's happened to us at the hand of the Assyrians, at the hand of the Babylonians, at the hands of all these foreign armies, we deserved all of it because of our sin. Oh, that America would turn to the Lord with real repentance and say we deserve any judgment that's hit us because we have done wickedly. Oh, that the nations of the earth would say, it's right and just for you to judge us because we've been wicked toward our God. Humankind, we don't like that message. We want to justify ourselves and vilify the Lord. But I love this. The only one, they say, the only one that's just is you and we deserve what we have bought in sin and unrighteousness. Beloved, that's the heart of salvation right there. That's, that's the heart of, of how a sinner gets saved. I'm in sin. I've done wickedly. I deserve hell, but you have been so good. That's, that's how it has to be. Anything less than that is not real. It's not authentic. And it puts me in mind of this. You know, it says this, that in Zechariah 2, it says that, in a future day, there's going to be another wall that will be built around Israel. Now, now, hear me. Zechariah 2, verse 5, it says that God will build a wall around Israel. It'll be a wall of fire. And he will be the glory in her midst. Build a wall of fire, and he will be the glory in her midst. And that day will be a day when the Lord reigns in Zion. 
Now before that day, Zechariah 12.10 tells us that he will release a great mourning on Israel, just like what they're in. This is a parallel time. What's going on here with Nehemiah is a parallel time to a future time. The wall will be rebuilt again, but it'll be a wall of fire and not a wall of stone. Mourning will be released on the people in repentance, just like it was here. But Zechariah 12.10 tells us this, that he'll pour upon them the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will mourn and weep. The whole nation will mourn and weep like one mourns and weep for the loss of a firstborn son. So the same repentance that they experienced in the time of Nehemiah, that same repentance and that same mourning at a much higher degree is going to be experienced at a future time. Though the wall was built in the time of Nehemiah, that wall, it will be superseded by the wall of fire that Jesus is going to build, be built, uh, built around the city. But here's the point I want to really, really make. That repentance that's to come for the nation of Israel, hear me real clear. We love to say, all Israel shall be saved. We love to quote Romans eleven twenty five and 26. But I tell you, all Israel shall be saved. That's absolutely true. But it will not come without Nehemiah nine thirty three once again being proclaimed from the mouth of the Jews. Hear me. They will say, just as the wall was rebuilt and Jesus is rebuilding a wall of fire, just as they went into mourning and repentance in that time, and they'll go into mourning and repentance again, I promise you, they will say from their mouths, you are just in all that's befallen us. You have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. They'll look the Lord Jesus in the eye and they'll say, our wickedness... And turning from you, it was right that you've allowed these things to take place. It was right that you allowed, hello, Nazi Germany to judge us. Because we've turned from the God to whom we've been in covenant with. And even greater than that, when Jesus returns, Israel will have just come out of the time called Jacob's trouble. When Antichrist himself will have targeted the Jews And I promise you, they will say with their lips, we have done wickedly, but you have been just. All that's befallen us, it's been right. Beloved, that's the truth of repentance. There's no sort of side door of repentance where you don't actually own up. Come on. There's no side door of repentance where you don't actually own up to your sin. You know, one of my little funny kind of side little pet peeves is, you know, maybe you'll be in, in council helping people get, you know, get uh, reconciled or whatever, and then the one guy goes to the other guy, goes, well, if I said anything that hurts your feelings, and I'm sorry if I said anything. And I go, bro, if you said anything, I got a list of 10 things here you said. Come on. I go, well, I'm sorry I said that. And I go, hey, there you go. Because it was wrong, right? They go, yeah. I go, hey, good job. That's repentance. You actually have to own it. And the other guy goes, I'm sorry if I ever did anything. If you ever did anything, hitting his car with a sledgehammer, that was obvious. Come on. Not a true story, just making it up. There's no real repentance unless there's real truth in the inner parts. Beloved, that is an important verse. It gives us a prefiguring of what the repentance is going to look like for the Jews at the end of the age. So, they make a covenant. 
and they bind themselves to it. They make a covenant with the Lord and they bind themselves to it. And look at this, verse 38. It says, in view of all this, we're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests, we're fixing our seals to it. And they go on to say, let us be cursed if we don't keep it. Let us be cursed if we don't keep this, God. Can you sense the, the national zeal? Can you sense the, the vigor and the, the sensation of, of wanting to serve the Lord and wanting to even put in the guide rails, so to speak, so that they serve God with all their heart and they never de- detour from it again? They are so gripped in the spirit of revival and repentance. I mean, they don't want to move a bit. And so let's look at what their covenant is. Chapter 10, he goes through and he lists off all the people that you know, specifically signed their names of this covenant and affixed the, their seal to it. And then he gives five things from verse 30 to verse 39. Five specifics of the repentance. And things that they, that they said, if we don't do these, let us be accursed. This is in, and this is so intriguing to me, what the specifics of the repentance are. Number one, it's in verse 30, he says, we're not going to intermarry or allow our children to intermarry with anyone of other religions. It's twofold sin right there. It's idol worship and sexual immorality. Sounds like the Babylonian harlot. These things all prefigure what's going to happen at the end of the age. We'll not allow our children to intermarry, nor will we intermarry with those of other religions to keep them out of idol worship and sexual immorality. Secondly, first part of 31, says we're not going to allow anyone to buy or sell on the Sabbath or during any festive feast. Do you remember when Jesus, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, he shows up and says, my house should be called a house of prayer. It was on the first day of a feast. What was going on there? The money changers and the, those selling goods were right there in the temple buying and selling. I almost wonder, and I think probably true, that Jesus is responding in such zeal on that day because of this covenant that the nation of Israel made with them in the days of Nehemiah. Thirdly, they said, we're going to remember the Sabbath. We're going to honor God On the Sabbath, we're going to do the Sabbath, rest for the land, and we're going to forgive our brethren of debts in the seventh year. Fourthly, in verse 32, they go in detail describing how they're going to give money for the upkeep of the temple and the house of prayer. They describe in detail what they're going to give and what it's going to provide for. And then, finally, from verse 35 on, they say we're going to give also the first fruits of our, of our increase and our tithes. Those were different. First fruits and tithes were different. They said we're going to give the first fruits and our tithes. Why? To pay for the Levites and the priests to do the sacrifices at the altar and to do the night and day prayer. So interesting to me. If you, 
we're going to get to this in, a, in an additional week, but if you look at Malachi's prophecy, and you look at chapter 1 through 4 of Malachi, and you look at Nehemiah, it's so clear. Malachi was prophesying during the days of Nehemiah. The exact same issues are being hit by Malachi. Undoubtedly, some of this language came from the oracles that Malachi was giving. But that last one, giving of the first fruit and paying the tithe, it's actually enumerated, it's actually spelled out in the end of chapter 10 of of Nehemiah. He says, we're going to give a tithe to all the Levites, and the Levites are going to give a tithe of that to the priests. The priests were the ones that actually officiated at the altars, and the Levites were the priests' assistants. And so they said, we're going to make sure, for sure, that the worship of the house of the Lord does not go unkept. We're going to make sure that the house of God is not neglected. I just, I sat back and I thought about this for a minute. I went, whoa, wait a minute. What if every minister, let's just make that the, in our city, and let's just say ministers equal the broad category of Levites. What if every minister gave a tithe to a citywide, and I didn't, I'm not trying to put us in the picture, I'm just saying a citywide house of prayer to pay for people to night and day do worship and prayer. This is what they're talking about. That's exactly what they did. What if that was the model today? How many staff do you think the house of prayer would have? Thousands. I was going, oh Lord. <laughs> Give us Nehemiah 10, God. <laughs> but I love what they said in verse 39. It says, for the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, the new wine and the oil to the storerooms. See, that's what the storeroom was. Storehouse or storerooms were the place where the tithe was kept. Why? Because it was an agricultural tithe and that tithe was going to go to be the food source for the Levites. Bring it to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, And look at that last phrase. This is the important one. And we will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. And I just believe this. I think the Lord is going to release that same spirit that was on the people here upon the body of Christ right now at the end of the age. And there's going to be this, this zeal, this gripping, so that... The people, the body says, we will not neglect the night and day worship in the house of our God. That was the point. They identify the singers as a group that's supposed to get the offerings. I believe that same spirit that was on the people during the days of Nehemiah, it's going to come on the church right here at this time. All right, let me land this. Chapter 11 He completes the census where they move one out of ten into the city of Jerusalem. That's the whole chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, you get the picture of the dedication of the wall. And it's beautiful what they do. I mean, I wish, I hope when we get there, they've got the DVD replay or whatever it is. Holy Spirit download, open vision replay, however that goes. Because here's what they do. Nehemiah goes, here's how we're going to dedicate the wall. 
He goes, I'm going to get one gigantic chorus of singers. You guys go over there. And I'm going to get another gigantic chorus of singers, and you guys will go over there. And it gives us the track that they walk, and they actually walk up and around the wall. So they're actually on top of the wall. These choruses are, and they're singing over the city. And they're singing with antiphonal response. One side would sing, and then the other side would sing. And it's echoing back and forth over the city. And so then they come down off the wall, and they go into the house of prayer, and they set up the singers and and the musicians going, and they're singing back and forth, and they're having this massive celebration, worshiping God. They're in, the, I think, one of the greatest biblical times of revival that you can identify in the Scripture, and it's all built in this night and day worship reality. And then let's sum it up in verse 43. It says, And on that day... They offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. Look at this. And the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Now that's revival. Revival hits the city. The city is rejoicing so greatly that they're hearing it. I mean, it's echoing. into other parts, other regions around Jerusalem. I just look at this and I went, oh God. I'm, I'm going to save the rest of chapter 12 and chapter 13 and combine it with, talk about Malachi in a later day, but I just look at this and I'll just get a little personal with you. I never understood Nehemiah was a book about Revival never knew that. The whole point is that it's a book about great revival. Maybe the greatest biblical revival we have on record. And I, I mean, that's been a major pursuit of my life for a long time. And they build until they get the breakthrough. And then when they get the breakthrough, the spirit of revival falls on them. And they stay in this revival mode for quite some time, actually, until they stay in revival until Nehemiah goes back to to, uh, Persia. And then you'll find out that he comes back and it's bad again. But I feel like the Lord is trying to give Nehemiah to us to encourage us in the times when it's hard, to encourage us to stay faithful when the accusations are great, the mockeries are intense, the finances are few, and to point us to what the outcome is. If you stay faithful and build, eventually the Spirit of the Lord falls, and the whole place goes into revival and great rejoicing. I feel like this is such a word for for me personally, but also for our house. I feel like the Lord wants us to continue to build and build and build until the breakthrough comes, until the the revival spirit comes, until repentance hits the city, until the rejoicing that fills Atlanta is so great that it's heard in regions far away. Come on. Amen. Let's stand.
I believe that, Lord. I receive that, Lord, as a word from you. I receive it. I just apprehend that by faith right now. I take this as a word from you. Just as the miracles and manifestations. I take that as a word from you. Without lots of emotion or intense hoopla, I just, I just want to invite you. If you'd say, you know what, I, I think the Lord is, is putting this picture of Nehemiah before us as something that we just need to say yes to. And I want to I wanna apprehend that by faith and say yes to that. And just, just stand before the Lord and say, I, I want that. I just want to invite you out from where you're standing and come down here. And let's just pray together as a company. And let's just say, Lord, we receive what you're laying out in Nehemiah. The building and the receiving of the revival. We, we receive this work.